as we learn more about you from this text, that you would help us to fall in love with you even more. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, dear ones, I know it's been a while since we've been in the text of Revelation, but I want to give you a little bit of a reminder where we've been. We are now in chapter 17 of Revelation, and in that chapter, we're beginning to look at the judgment of Babylon. So remember, we've looked at the seven bulls. We went through seven seals, seven trumpets, seven bulls of judgment. And after chapter 16, what John does is he focuses on Babylon in both chapters 17 and 18. And what he's going to do is he's going to explain to us what Babylon is all about. Chapter 17, which we're in now, he focuses on the religious aspect of Babylon. In chapter 18, he focuses on the commercial aspect of Babylon. Now, recall we left off here in Revelation 17, verses 3 through 5. And remember here, John began by talking about the fact that he was led away in the spirit, meaning he, didn't, he wasn't physically moved, but he saw this as a vision. Notice it says, And he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness... And I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast full of blasphemous names, having seven heads and ten horns. The woman was clothed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls, having in her hand a gold cup full of abominations and of the unclean things of her immorality. And on her forehead a name was written, a mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and of the abominations of the earth." Now, dear ones, believe it or not, we went through this entire text and we talked about the fact that the beast here, the harlot, was dressed in purple and it was sitting on this scarlet beast. We also gave an allusion to the fact that it had seven heads and ten horns, this beast. And that, of course, showed us that the beast is the Antichrist. But where we left off is, notice down in verse 5, we were talking about Babylon the Great and we were talking about where is Babylon the Great. And we had a pretty robust discussion, if I remember, about the last eight minutes of class. And some hold the view that it's Rome and others Jerusalem. I believe that it's literally going to be Babylon. So I want to do is spend a little bit of time and try to show you some evidence that I think compels us to believe that it's literal Babylon. Now, how do we know first and foremost that Babylon the Great here that we're looking at in verse 5, how do we know that it's a city at all? Certainly it's more than a city. It is the headquarters of all apostasy and idolatry. But we know it's a city because in Revelation 17, 18, John says it's a city. Okay, so if John says it's a city, it's a city. So we're not out of our minds to think that Babylon is going to be headquartered in a city because John tells us as much. Now, the question then is, what city is it? Now, let me just go through the three major options that we have. The first one is Jerusalem. Now, Jerusalem became very popular actually with Roman Catholics. Now, let me explain why. In the centuries surrounding the Reformation, the Reformers typically would say all of the judgments that happen in the book of Revelation happen in history. And in so doing, they placed the Antichrist firmly in the lap of the Pope. The Pope is the Antichrist. Rome is Babylon. That was the claim. So how many in here have ever heard of preterism? Preterism is the belief that, no, everything within the book of Revelation and eschatology, at least the majority of it, happened in 70 AD when the destruction of the temple and the Jews really happened at the hands of the Romans. Well, that's a Roman Catholic doctrine. And it was designed to turn attention away from the reformers painting the Pope to be the Antichrist and Rome to be Babylon. So what the Roman Catholic Church did is they said, no, it's actually Jerusalem. Okay, so what I want to do is I want to begin by saying, no, it's not Jerusalem. And let me prove to you that Babylon the Great is not Jerusalem. Let's look at a couple of texts that I think conclusively prove this. Now, why am I spending so much time on this? Believe it or not, the major goal that I have in presenting the book of Revelation to you is to come to true interpretations. On the one hand, we don't have to divide. If someone believes it's Rome or the Babylon the Great is Jerusalem, I'm not going to part ways with you over that issue. But on the other hand, we also don't want to be postmodern and just toss our hands up and say, well, who can really know? To me, that's the way the book of Revelation has been muted. It's because people say, well, who can ever even know it? And they fall for the postmodern trap. Uh, I remember John MacArthur famously said in his eschatology lecture that he gave at the Shepherds Conference, 
He said, you know, we as evangelicals believe in what we call the perspicuity of Scripture. That's the clarity of Scripture. And then he said, but when it comes to eschatology, the last things, he just asked the question, has God muddled the ending? Is God given us confusion? He was clear everywhere else except on the last things. Then he's unclear and we can have any old interpretation. And what he was doing is he was actually challenging on millennialists to say, you better look at your eschatology again because this isn't unclear. That's what he was doing. And I want to do the same thing. And so my goal here today is just to begin by showing you, I think Babylon is literally Babylon. It's going to be the city of Babylon rebuilt. Now, let's begin with eliminating the other choices. Let's begin with Jerusalem. Again, Roman Catholics would claim Babylon the Great is Jerusalem. Many Reformed preterists would believe that that is today. But let's turn to a text. We'll look at two of them, actually, that seem to refute this. First of all, turn your Bibles to Revelation 11.8. Revelation 11.8. As you're turning there, what you're going to see is this text is a, an opportunity for John to link Babylon to Jerusalem if he intended to make that link. That's why this is an important text. If there was ever an opportunity for John the Apostle to link Jerusalem to Babylon, here's his opportunity. But as you're going to see, he does not do so. Revelation 11. Now, remember the context? You had the two witnesses that are put to death. Remember, they came in the spirit of Elijah and Moses. They prophesied, I believe, during this last three-and-a-half-year period. Well, in Revelation 11.8, it talks about them being, their, their dead bodies lying in the street. It says, and their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city, which mystically is called Sodom and Egypt. Now, notice what it says after that. It says, where also their Lord was crucified. So notice the end of verse 8 there makes no bones about it. This is Jerusalem that's being referred to. That's where the Lord was crucified after all. So it's Jerusalem. But notice when he says it's mystically called Sodom and Egypt, you could say spiritually. This is a metaphor. Metaphorically, they're like Sodom and Egypt. Now, why does he say that? Well, because they were known for their idolatry. And so was Jerusalem. But notice he doesn't say mystically it's called Babylon. He could have done that. If John wanted to make the link between Jerusalem and Babylon, there's his opportunity. But he doesn't link it to Babylon specifically. He links it to Sodom and Egypt. And so all I'm claiming is those who want to say, ah, Jerusalem is absolutely Babylon the Great, the city, well, there would be John's grand opportunity to show that link, and he doesn't do so. It reminds me, do you remember in uh, Acts chapter 1? It's a related idea. Do you remember where Peter asked Jesus, Is it now that you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And if there was ever a time that Jesus could have set the record straight if amillennialism was true, if there was no kingdom coming to Israel, wasn't it a grand opportunity for Jesus to simply say, where did you get that idea that the kingdom's coming to Israel? But he doesn't say that, does he? He says, it's not for you to know the times and the hours that are, the epochs that are in the Father's hand, but you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. My point is, there was a grand opportunity for Jesus to say the kingdom isn't coming to Israel. This is a grand opportunity for John to link Jerusalem to Babylon. He doesn't do it. Now, let me show you another text in Revelation. Revelation 16, 19. Please turn your Bibles there. Here, do you remember there was this judgment of this earthquake? And the results of it affect Jerusalem. It affects the cities of the nations, the Goyim, the the Gentiles. And then one of the Gentile cities is specifically mentioned, namely Babylon. It becomes very clear. There's a distinction between Babylon and Jerusalem. Notice here, Revelation 16, 19. A result of the earthquake, it says, the great city was split into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell. Now stop there. The reason the first part of verse 19 of Revelation 16 is so significant is because notice the distinction between the great city, which is Jerusalem, and the city of the nations. You see, the city of the nations, the nations, that's the Gentiles. How could John be any clearer that the great city is Jerusalem? See, you have to have a contrast. The cities of the nations, of the Gentiles, has to be contrasted with a non-Gentile city. Well, what is that? It's the great city. Well, what is that? It's Jerusalem. So certainly he's talked about Jerusalem and all the cities of the nations, Well, now notice he says, Babylon the great was remembered before God to give her the cup of the wine of his fierce wrath. 
So what John does is he takes one of the cities of the nations, the Goyim, the Gentiles, namely Babylon, and he focuses on that. But notice that that is not linked in any way to Jerusalem. Jerusalem is mentioned in the first portion of the text. Babylon is mentioned at the end of the text. And there is no link at all between them. In fact, if there's any link at all, it's between one of the cities of the nations, the Gentiles, in Babylon. Does everyone see that? So again, John had a great opportunity if Babylon was in fact Jerusalem and Jerusalem was Babylon to make the link there. He doesn't do it. Okay? Now, let's talk about Rome. I know I got some pushback last time about Rome. And one of the reasons why many rightly think that Rome, and I, I, by the way, I don't think rightly in the sense that it's the correct interpretation, but I don't think you're crazy in thinking that Rome could be a possible uh, place for Babylon. After all, the Roman Catholic Church has been engaged in idolatry since its inception. But what I want to lay out is some of the evidence that people who hold that view typically will throw out there, and I don't think it's compelling in any way. First of all, let's talk about the idea that Rome sits upon seven hills. And in fact, that's what we see this beast that the harlot rides upon sits upon seven heads, which are seven hills. But what's very interesting is John makes it very clear that these seven hills aren't literal. Because, and I'm going to show you later in the slide itself, in Revelation 17.10, he's going to say that the seven hills are in fact seven kings or seven kingdoms. Now, from that, the people who don't want to let go of the Rome view will say, aha, if there are seven kings, they must be the seven emperors of Rome. But here's the problem with that. The book of Revelation was written during the time of Domitian. And what's very interesting is the Antichrist holds the seventh kingdom and an eighth one because, remember, he's dead and then he's kind of raised up and he's in, actually indwelt by Satan. Well, so he's the seventh and the eighth. What's very interesting is if you have Domitian be the emperor, the emperor in which the book of Revelation is written, well, he's the twelfth emperor. So if, in fact, the emperors of Rome were the seven heads you'd have to have 12 of them, okay? Because that was the one that was, that still existed as John was writing the book of Revelation. Now, some people will push back and they'll say, no, 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 it was Nero. And the book of Revelation should be dated to the time of Nero. Well, what's the problem with that? Well, Nero is the sixth emperor. Again, the Antichrist is the seventh and the eighth, but Nero was the sixth. Think about it. You have Julius Caesar. After him, who'd you have? You had Augustus. You had Tiberius. That's where Jesus, much of his ministry surrounded that. Then you have Claudius, or no, I'm sorry, Caliglia, Claudius, and then you had Nero. So Nero's the sixth emperor. If you start with Julius Caesar. If you start with Augustus, which many do, you only have him being the fifth emperor. Well, again, if this view, the Rome view, is to be correct you'd have to have Nero be three different emperors, three different kings. He'd have to be the sixth, the seventh, and the eighth. Now, how many want to try to make that argument? So my whole point is nothing in the Rome view is compelling at all. Now, there's also another problem, and that is the idea of the demonic activity that occurs around the Euphrates. The Euphrates is routinely mentioned... And what's interesting, what is not mentioned, is the Tibris or other rivers around Rome. Turn your Bibles to Revelation 9.16. Revelation 9.16, what I'm wanting you to see here as we turn to Revelation 9.16 is that you would expect demonic activity to surround Babylon, the harlot, because she is the headquarters of all idolatry. Well, it's very interesting is a lot of times you see the demonic activity in the book of Revelation, it surrounds the area of the Euphrates. Notice here Revelation 9.14. It says, now this is one angel saying, actually one of the living creatures saying to an angel, it says, one was saying to the sixth angel that had the trumpet, release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. So remember, both at the fifth and the sixth trumpet, you have the release of these demonic beings, and it creates such problematic uh, such problems on the earth that ends up leading to a third of the earth dying. But the demonic activity doesn't surround the Mediterranean. It doesn't surround the Tibris River. It surrounds the Euphrates. Why? Well, because that's where Babylon the Great is. That's the indication. 
Now, turn your Bibles ahead. Again, Revelation 16, 12. This is the sixth bowl. And I just want you to see where the kings of the east come from. Revelation 16, 12. It says, The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river. That's the Euphrates, not the Tiberus by Rome, but the Euphrates. He says, And its water was dried up so that the way would be prepared for the kings from the east. So let's just stop there. This demonic activity, again, it starts with demonic activity, then that leads to mankind coming. But they come from the east, from the area of the Euphrates, from Babylon the Great. Now, let's ask the question, is Rome to the east or the west of Jerusalem? It's to the west. (laughs) Okay, what was dried up, the Euphrates or the Mediterranean? It was the Euphrates, wasn't it? So all of this is placing our attention towards the area of Babylon. That's where the enemies of God came from initially in the history of God's dealings with Israel. And so it is again. Babylon, every indication points us to a literal Babylon that will be rebuilt along the Euphrates. It's the Euphrates area in which the headquarters of demonic activity is happening. So for those reasons, I don't see any validity to the view that Jerusalem or Rome are in fact Babylon the Great. I think it's against the evidence. And I think the evidence that we do have really does place us looking towards a literal Babylon being rebuilt along the Euphrates River. Okay? Any questions or comments, pushback, show ideas? Yes, Eric. I just was thinking of a couple of things. One, one thing is, that, you know, the idea that Scripture proves Scripture, and that's what you're doing here, which is good. In other words, that's what we've got to remember. Scripture proves Scripture, and if we don't think it's consistent, it's because we don't understand correctly. And sure. so these things all fall into place. The other thing that enters my mind is that, uh, and this is actually a question, isn't there... Um, isn't Babylon uh, under Saddam Hussein? Was he trying to rebuild the city of Babylon? So, yeah, in other was. words, there are certain historical things that are apparent to us now, which, you know, 50 years ago, people trying to understand prophecy, they couldn't conceive of the idea that it could be literally the real city of Babylon. Well said. Yeah, it, you're right. Saddam Hussein was trying to rebuild it. And I think there's some UN activity as well that they're trying to rebuild it. And that's kind of a fascinating proposition. The UN and Babylon, boy, they go hand in hand. Huh? <laughs> Who would have thought that, right? But yeah, you know, you remind me of the story. I used to read this Louis Burkhoff when I was in seminary. He's a reformed theologian, has a lot to offer. I disagree with him in areas of eschatology and other places. But I remember Louis Burkhoff came to his eschatology section, very thick, uh, reformed, systematic theological text. And he wrote it, I believe, in 1939, if I recall. That was the copyright, anyway. And he had said in his eschatology section that there was no way that we should ever expect a regathering of the people of Israel. It wasn't demanded from the text, nor should we ever expect that would ever happen. Well, think about the time that he lived in. Israel was not in its land. But isn't it interesting, just, what is it, nine years later after he wrote that, they become a nation. So if he would have just not wrote, written his eschatology section for another nine years, he would have had to, he could have changed that. So I think you're right. I think these are things that, again, I believe can be built very quickly. Um, think of this analogy. Think about the World War II. We got into it in December 7th, 1941. Think about what we did in, in four years. I mean, the end of it's 1945. I mean, the amount of aircraft carriers, tanks, the amount of beans and bullets that we were able to produce. I think Babylon can be built in a very short order. So I'm just saying whether it's built in the beginning of the 70th week and they continue it on or before, I don't know. But it doesn't require that it's built prior to the 70th week of Daniel. I think this is something that, again, the world can do very quickly. Alexander the Great, by the way, he built a harbor that is just it was unrivaled in its time in Babylon. And so it was fascinating because to, to us, we think Babylon is fairly landlocked with sand and dirt. And, but here he had built in a very short time uh, a huge harbor that was a, a marvel of the world. So, yeah, these, and that was without the, the modern convenience of having bulldozers and things that we have today. So, yeah, very good point. Thank you, Eric. Well, okay, I'm going to continue on now. But I just want to lay out the fact that I think that literal Babylon along the Euphrates is the best view when it comes to the city of Babylon the Great. Now, with that, let's continue to look at how the harlot 
this Babylon the Great and how it rides the beast. There's this connection between the harlot, Babylon the Great, and the Antichrist. Revelation 17, verses 6 through 8, it says, And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the witnesses of Jesus. When I saw her, I wondered greatly. And the angel said to me, Why do you wonder? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and the beast that carries her, which has the seven heads and the ten horns. The beast that you saw was and is not and is about to come up out of the abyss and go to destruction. And those who dwell on the earth whose name has not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world, will wonder when they see the beast that he was and is not and will come. Well, there's a lot here. Let's begin at the very beginning here. Notice verse 6. He says, I saw a woman drunk with the blood of the saints. Babylon the Great is going to be used by the beast to murder a copious amount of the saints, those who believe in Jesus Christ. And so this happens, I believe, specifically at the midpoint of the tribulation, the last three and a half years. In other words, there's persecution prior to that, but it really takes off at the three and a half year mark. And I want to show you evidence of this from the Olivet Discourse, because I want you to see that what Jesus was saying in his Olivet Discourse is synonymous with what the book of Revelation is saying. So please turn your Bibles, if you will, to Matthew 24, verses 6 through 11. So again, the Antichrist is going to be using Babylon. And Babylon, this harlot, is going to be putting many Christians to death for their testimony in Jesus Christ. And I believe that this persecution by both the beast and the harlot was something that Jesus was talking about in the Olivet Discourse. Matthew 24, 6 through 11. Let's begin there. Matthew 24, 6. Jesus says, you will be hearing of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not yet frightened, for those things must take place, but that is not yet the end. Now stop there for just a moment. Let's remember at the opening seal judgments that we saw in Revelation 6. Remember at the fourth seal you had warfare, sword, famine, pestilence, and wild beasts. The warfare was so bad it led to famine. And the famine was so bad it led to pestilence. And the pestilence was so bad that led to wild beasts, animals taking away human beings and killing their lives. That was all because of the warfare. An allusion back to Ezekiel 14.21, where God would send that judgment upon Israel for their sins. But at the fourth seal, at the very beginning in Revelation 6, at the very beginning of the 70th week of Daniel, that is turned upon the world. Those are the wars that I believe Jesus is referring to. You see, we see wars today, but none that lead to the end of a quarter of the earth's existence. That's a war. Okay, we've never had that. By the way, World War II, I looked at the stats. I think we lost at most 8% of the world's population, which is a lot, but it's not a quarter. And then later on, when we get into the trumpet judgments, you lose another third. So you lose half of the earth's population. So this is unparalleled, the warfare that's going to happen. Jesus continues. So he's at the beginning of the 70th week, in my opinion. Notice Matthew 24, 70. He says, For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. And in various places there will be famines and earthquakes. We saw that at the inception of Daniel's 70th week. But notice he says, but all of these things are merely the beginning of birth pangs. Now, that birth pangs idea, I've labored that a lot, but that's the beginning of the 70th week. It's the beginning of the birth pangs. Now in verse 9, what Jesus does is he gets into the second half of the 70th week, the last three and a half years. He says, then they will deliver you to tribulation and will kill you. And you will be hated by all nations because of my name. And at that time, many will fall away and will betray one another and hate one another. Many false prophets will arise and will mislead many. You see, there he's at the halfway point. And so at the midpoint of the tribulation period, many saints are going to lose their lives. And this is specifically directed towards Israel. Because for the first three and a half years, they have protection. But that protection ends at the three and a half year mark. That's where Antichrist sets himself up into the temple. And that's when he says, you better be on your guard because tribulation is going to be so severe. Notice the reference in verse 11 to the many false prophets that will arise. Well, went Babylon the Great along the Euphrates, the headquarters of all spiritual idolatry and heresy, be a great place to send all the false prophets from? 
So I think that we have to make that connection to say, yes, there are going to be many false prophets. It's not going to just be the Antichrist and that's it. He's going to have many cohorts with him, including those from Babylon the Great. Okay, so I want you to see that connection that the bloodshed of the saints happens at the three and a half year mark on in a profound way, much more than the first three and a half years, and Babylon the Great is going to be used to do so, to do that. And it's something that Jesus talked about. Now, let's look at verse 7 here on this, on the passage that you see before you. Notice here in verse 7, John is really providing the interpretation of the woman riding the beast, and I want you to realize that this explanation goes all the way to Revelation 17, 18. Notice he says, And the angel said to me, Why do you wonder? So he's marveling. He says, I will tell you the mystery of the woman and the beast that carries her, which has the seven heads and the ten horns. Now, notice here, whoops, I hit the wrong button. Notice in verse 8, you have a further description. It says, The beast that you saw was and is not and is about to come up out of the abyss and go to destruction. What is that referring to? Well, that's referring to the wound that the beast suffered back in Revelation 13 that we read about. So the idea is that the beast is going to have a wound that seems to be fatal. He'll die, but then he's going to have a pseudo-resurrection. Either it's real or it's fake, but he's going to appear at least to be raised from the dead. And at that point, he becomes Satan incarnate. So think about Jesus as truly God, truly man. Remember, the beast, when he raises up from his wound, it's depicted as he's coming out of the abyss. That term is used over and over. So what Satan does is he perverts the incarnation of Christ. Jesus, truly God, truly man. You're going to have the beast who's going to be truly man, truly indwelt by Satan. So it's a counterfeit incarnation. Are you with me? So that's what's being referred to. Now, let's remind ourselves where this was talked about earlier. Turn your Bibles to Revelation 13, verses 3 through 5. This is where it's very specific about the fact that the Antichrist is wounded, and yet he came alive again. Revelation 13, verses 3 through 5. John says, I saw one of his heads as if it had been slain, and his fatal wound was healed. What was the result of it? Well, he says, And the whole earth was amazed and followed after the beast. They worshipped the dragon because he gave his authority to the beast. So the dragon is Satan, right? And so they would say, Who is like the beast and who is able to wage war with him? Now notice verse 5. It says, There was given to him a mouth speaking arrogant words and blasphemies and authority to act for how long? For 42 months. That's the last three and a half years. And so that's why the last three and a half years are so bad because now... The Antichrist is indwelt by Satan himself. And the whole world marvels at the fact that he was raised up. They won't marvel at the fact that the true Son of God was raised up, but they'll marvel at the false one. They're going to give allegiance to the false one. Now think about that. When Jesus said, A wicked and adulterous generation seek after a sign, but none will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. The sign of Jonah is really the resurrection. Jonah was dead for all intents and purposes in the, the belly of a whale. For three days, three nights, Jesus, the Messiah, is dead for three days and three nights. Why should we listen to Jonah? Well, there was something unusual about Jonah. He was dead for three days and three nights, and now he's alive. We should listen to him. Well, Jesus was dead for three days and three nights. We should listen to him, but the world won't. The world won't. And it's the only sign that they're given. But when the Antichrist is raised, the whole world and the idea would be the whole inhabited world, by and large, everyone who's not part of the regenerate, they're going to marvel at his resurrection. And so it shows you the issue isn't the miracle of the resurrection. The issue is whether God regenerates to open the heart so that people can believe. That ends up being the real issue. Now, notice here who it is that is deceived by the beast. Again, we have that phrase, those who dwell upon the earth, or dwell on the earth. Now, I've labored this. I won't get into it anymore. But eight times you see that phrase in the book of Revelation, and it is always referring to unbelievers. The reason why I mention that, Revelation 3.10, Jesus says, because you, believers, have been faithful to keep my word, I will keep you from the hour of trial that comes upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. The purpose of the great hour of tribulation isn't to test believers, but those who dwell on the earth. Now, proof that those who dwell on the earth are unbelievers, notice the appositional phrase that comes after the underline. It says, whose name has not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world. Can it be any clearer that those who are the earth dwellers 
are in fact unbelievers. An appositional statement, by the way, would be if I said, Bob DeWay, comma, my friend and a great guy, great theologian, comma, is going to be here today preaching. Well, between the commas is appositional. It further describes Bob. Well, that's what you have here. It's a further description of those who dwell on the earth, and it cannot be any clearer that they are unbelievers. Now, the other doctrine that comes up, notice in this text, it says their names had not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world. The implication is that for believers, the elect, their names are written before the foundation of the world. Remember, we saw in Ephesians 1.4 that we've been chosen in him before the foundation of the world. I just point that out because there's another passage in which the doctrine of election and reprobation shows itself. Again, I mentioned a few weeks ago in our study in Romans, the doctrine of election isn't some obscure doctrine. It's all over the Bible. Anybody have any comments or questions? Okay, I'll keep moving on here. The last thing I want to point out in this text is notice it talks about the fact that they will wonder. Does everyone see? Let me pull up my pointer so everyone sees what I'm looking at. Notice it says that those who dwell on the, upon the earth, they will wonder when they see the beast, that he was and is not and will come. So they're marveling or wondering about his resurrection. Now, the term wonder there comes from thaumazo. And what you have to realize is that when Jesus used to do his miraculous deeds during his earthly ministry, oftentimes it would leave people to thaumazo. They would marvel. So I'm just showing you this to show you a parallel to show you that, yes, the beast is, in, is going to try to do miracles to show himself to be the true Christ when, in fact, he's the false one. In fact, turn your Bibles to Matthew 8.27. I'll just show you one example. Matthew 8.27, this is where, remember, Jesus was in the boat, and they're taking on a large amount of water, and the disciples say, well, don't you care for us? Well, Jesus stands up and he says, peace be stilled. And what's the result of that? Matthew 8.27, it says... The men were amazed and said, what kind of man is this that even the winds and the seas obey him? Now, the reason why Jesus did that particular miracle, beyond the fact that the disciples needed it, is in the book of Job, Yahweh alone treads down the waves of the sea. In the book of Job, Yahweh alone controls the waves of the sea. So by Jesus stilling the sea, what is he demonstrating? Well, he's Yahweh. He's God. And they marveled at it. Well, now, in the 70th week of Daniel, the Antichrist will be raised up, as it were, and the world will marvel at him rather than the true Christ. And I'm just showing you this, that this idea of an incarnate beast is really designed by Satan to be a pseudo-Christ. It really is to be an imposter to lead the people away. That's what it's designed to do. Okay, now with that, let's keep going. Let's talk about more of the interpretation of the beast. Verses 9 through 12. John says, Here is the mind which has wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sits, and they are seven kings. Five have fallen, one is, the other has not yet come. And when he comes, he must remain a little while. The beast which was and is not is himself also an eighth. And is one of the seven, and he goes to destruction. The ten horns which you saw are ten kings who have not yet received a kingdom, but they receive authority as kings with the beast for one hour. Now, notice here at the beginning, John says, here's the mind that has wisdom. John is going to explain to us the symbolism of the seven heads and the ten horns. So you and I don't have to wonder what they mean. He's going to just simply tell us what they are. Isn't that wonderful? Now, let me just give you uh, why that's important. Many people will denigrate the book of Revelation because they'll say, well, it's just apocalyptic literature. What's apocalyptic literature? Well, it was literature that was written. A lot of it was written in the intertestamental period, but there was others also after the time of Christ. But this apocryphal literature would use very fanciful uh, symbols. And what you could do with it is you could read in your own meaning to whatever the symbol was. Okay? So what people would do is they would take the book of Revelation. They say, ah, it's apocalyptic literature. We can read into the symbols anything we want. Well, the first problem with that is John in John chapter 1 of Revelation. Excuse me, not John 1. Revelation chapter 1. 
He says that Revelation is a prophecy. So he labels it prophecy, not necessarily apocalyptic literature. The second problem is, notice that when John talks about images and symbols, he gives us the meaning. That's where this differs so from apocalyptic imagery and writings of the day. John actually supplies you the interpretation so you're not left wondering. So, well, let's get into it. What are the seven heads? Well, he says the seven heads are seven mountains. And then he boils that down. He says, well, they're really seven kings. Okay? Now, again, this creates a grand problem for those who believe that Babylon the Great is, in fact, Rome. Because remember, Babylon the Great is riding on this beast. Okay? So the beast and and Babylon the Great are tied together to a certain extent. Now, remember, those who believe in the Rome view say that these seven heads or seven hills are the seven hills of Rome. Well, when you show them, well, they're actually seven kings, they say, well, okay, well, then they're the seven emperors. Again, what's the problem with that? Well, the Antichrist is the seventh and the eighth, but Nero was the fifth or sixth, depending on how you have it. If it was written during the reign of Domitian, which I think it is, Irenaeus said it was, Irenaeus, or excuse me, Domitian was the 12th emperor. So you'd have to have 12 heads. Well, none of that fits. So that rules out to me the idea that Babylon the Great could be Rome, or it linked to the beast for that matter as well. Okay? Now, one thing I want to prove to you, I'm going to come back to this text. I'm going to show you another slide. I'm going to come right back to this text. But I want to show you that oftentimes... The idea of kings and kingdoms are used interchangeably. Notice in verse 10 in the underline, it says they are seven kings. What I want to make the case is that the kings and kingdoms are interchangeable. Now, I'm not just doing a fast one on you to support my interpretation. What I'm using is kings and kingdoms interchangeably because the book of Daniel does, and I believe Revelation is built off of that. So let me show you the evidence of that. Again, I want to show you the king-kingdom relationship from Daniel 7 and show you that they can be used interchangeably. Notice what Daniel 7, remember the book of Revelation is built off of Daniel 2 and really all of Daniel, Daniel 7, Daniel 8, Daniel 9. Notice what it says in Daniel 7, 17, and 23, talking about the four kingdoms that come up. Here he saw it as a vision of beasts. He says, these great beasts, which are four in number, are four kings who will arise from the earth. Stop there. What four kings did he see? Well, he saw the kings that were over Babylon, over Medo-Persia, over Greece, and over Rome. That's what he saw. Then out of Rome would come another revived Roman Empire from which the Antichrist would come. Well, notice in verse 23, notice how he substitutes the kingdoms for the kings. He says, thus he said, the fourth beast will be a fourth kingdom on the earth which will be different from all the other kingdoms and will devour the whole earth and tread it down and crush it. Now, the reason I'm laboring this point is I want you to see that in Revelation 17, when it talks about these kings, they're also kingdoms. What would a king be without a kingdom? Do you see that interchangeability? Okay, so that's going to be very important to our understanding what John is talking about. So let's go back to it. Notice he said that, yes, when it came to the seven kings... He said, five have fallen, one is, the other has not yet come, and when he comes, he must remain a little while. Well, again, the Roman emperor solution doesn't work. So what does work? Well, the five kingdoms that had come about in John's day were the five kingdoms that were world kingdoms. They were dominant world powers. So you can't use the Edomites or somebody like that. That wasn't a dominant world power, even though they were the enemies of Israel. These are five dominant world kingdoms that were often the enemies of Israel. And it begins with Egypt. And from Egypt, you go to Assyria. And from Assyria, you go to Babylon. From Babylon, you go to the Medo-Persians. And from the Medo-Persians, you go to the Greek Empire. Now, notice he says, those five have fallen, but one is. Now, what was the empire that was in existence when John was writing? It was Rome. So, yes, certainly Rome is an empire, and that's part of the seven heads. It's the sixth one. But then notice he says he must remain, excuse me, that's the one that is, but notice he says the other has not yet come. That's the seventh. Now the seventh is the Antichrist. The Antichrist will be an offshoot that comes out of the Roman Empire. That doesn't mean it's going to be from Italy or anything like that. It's just, it's depicted in that way. Daniel 2, how many remember Daniel 2? Remember the statue? The last part of the statue was the Roman Empire. It looks at the feet. And it says the feet had ten toes. Well, those are the 
kings that are associated with the Antichrist kingdom, and it's associated with Rome. It comes out of there. Okay? So that's the seventh. The seventh kingdom that you see here is the one that has not yet come. That's Antichrist kingdom. Does everyone see that in the underlying portion? But remember what happens to Antichrist. Well, we just talked about the fact that he was slain, and then he's resurrected. And when he's resurrected, he now comes up out of the abyss, and he's Satan incarnate. It's a fake in- incarnation, and that's why it says when he comes, he must remain a little while. That's why it says in verse 11, the beast which was and is not is himself also an eighth and is one of the seven, and he goes to destruction. So does everyone see that? So the Antichrist kingdom is going to be the seventh kingdom. When he dies, he's resurrected, he becomes the eighth kingdom. He's Satan incarnate. And notice right after it talks about it, it says he goes to destruction. Do you notice every time the Antichrist is talked about, John alludes to the fact that he's going to destruction, that Jesus is going to get him. He's going to destruction. He's going to the abyss. That's always said of the Antichrist. Okay, that's very good. Now, notice here in verse 12, it says, The ten horns which you saw are ten kings who have not yet received a kingdom, but they will receive authority as kings with the beast for one hour. These ten kings, I believe, are given authority with the beast for the last three and a half years. Now, one thing I'm going to wrestle with you, I don't know the answer necessarily. The question is, who kills the beast? Well, the text doesn't tell us. But in Daniel chapter 7, it talks about the beast, that's the Antichrist. It's a little horn. He actually fights with three of the ten kings, and he subdues them. So perhaps he's killed in that battle. We don't know. I'm just, I, there's, we're not given any more information than that. So I'm just trying to say, we're never told by John who kills the beast. Perhaps it's one of those three kings in the book of Daniel that the Antichrist usurps of the ten. I don't know. I'll just put my cards on the table and say, I don't know if someone has a good reading and can prove it, that he's killed by someone else, I'll hear it. Okay, But he's killed by someone, and I think it's probably one of those three kings or kingdoms. Okay, I'll show you that in the next text. But here, I want to show you a grand picture. I spent lots of time on this one. So. And Christy helped me, so... It's actually got good graphics here. This is what the beast looks like. This is the depiction of it when we look at what John is saying. The first kingdom would be Egypt. Remember he said five have come. One is, the other has not yet come. So here's the first five. Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, Persia, Greece. Okay, so those first five had come. But then there was one that was when John was writing, and that was Rome. Now, let's just stop there for a moment. Let's go back to Daniel 2. I've already showed you that Revelation is built off of Daniel 2.28. Remember the things that must take place in the last days are now the things that must take place soon, John says, in Revelation 1.1. Well, remember in Daniel 2, the depiction of that statue, it had the four kingdoms that would come about. It just started here. It started at Babylon, and then went, that was the head of gold. Remember, then you had Persia, and you had Greece. And then you got down to the feet... And that was Rome in that statue in Daniel 2. Well, then you had ten toes. Well, that was the Antichrist kingdom that would come out of that. So I call it the revived Roman Empire. And I just call it that because I don't know what else to call it. Okay, if anyone else has a a nicer jingo to it, I'm open to suggestions. But I'm just calling it the revived Roman Empire. That is the, the empire of the Antichrist. And that is, in fact, the seventh that was listed by John. But at some point, this Antichrist is going to be put to death around the three-and-a-half-year mark, and he's going to be raised up from the abyss. He's incarnate, uh, Satan incarnate, and then he's going to be linked. Notice the ten horns. Those are the ten kingdoms that are with him. Now, I want you to see that all of this was spelled out in the book of Daniel. So this isn't something brand new to the book of Revelation. Turn your Bibles to Daniel chapter 7, verses 7 through 8. And we're going to see that, in fact, Daniel was looking and seeing the same thing. Now, he was looking off into the last days. John is presenting this as something that can occur imminently. That's why the book of Revelation is bookended by the term soon. Revelation 1.1, Revelation 22.20. So, Daniel 7, 7 through 8. Daniel is revealing these mysteries. He's a prophet. And God tells him what these visions were. It says, After this I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrifying and extremely strong, 
It had large iron teeth that devoured and crushed and trampled down the remainder of it, remainder with its feet. And it was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. So notice the reference to ten horns. What he's describing there is the Antichrist kingdom. Again, the beast has ten horns, ten kings that are with him. Notice in Daniel 7, 8, he says, While I was contemplating the horns, behold, another, another horn, a little one, came up among them. And three of the first horns were pulled out by the roots before it. And behold, this horn possessed eyes like the eyes of man, and a mouth uttering great boasts. Now, this little one, this little horn, we'll stop there. We know he's the Antichrist because later on in Daniel 7, he wears down the saints. We know he's the Antichrist because he, he boasts great words right here in verse 8. Remember, according to 2 Thessalonians 2, the Antichrist, the man of lawlessness, puts himself up in the temple of God and he presents himself to be God. Well, those are the boastful words that I think are being alluded to in Daniel 7, 8. So I want you to realize then that this Antichrist kingdom with the ten horns is something that Daniel himself saw. But I want you to also see the reference to the fact that there were three of the ten horns. There seemed to be a battle between that and the little horn, the Antichrist, because he plucks up three of them. Perhaps that's where the Antichrist dies. Again, John never tells us. Daniel isn't explicit. It's just a hypothesis. We don't know. But that perhaps is the battle that killed the Antichrist, and from there, he's raised up. All we know is that at the end, the last three and a half years, at some point, there's ten nations again that are aligned with Antichrist. In fact, turn your Bibles ahead in Daniel, Daniel 7.24. Daniel 7.24. Daniel continued, it says, As for the ten horns, out of this kingdom ten kings will arise... And another will arise after them, and he will be different from the previous ones and will subdue three kings. And again, I think that's a reference to the Antichrist. So here's the point. When we look on the screen, I'll get my pointer up. Whether the beast subdues three of these, and there's only seven left, and he's killed and he's raised, or he subdues three of them and then they're replaced, and when he's raised up, there's ten more, I don't know. But there's a battle we know from Daniel with three of the ten. And perhaps that's where Antichrist is killed. But it's always depicted as a kingdom that's going to have ten horns that proceed out of it. Okay. Now let's keep moving. I want to show you the nature of the beast. I want to show you a contrast because I think John intends to show us a contrast between the beast and Jesus Christ. First one is, is remember Babylon what it's all about. Because Babylon and the beast are linked together. Remember back in Genesis 11, when the first Babel is built, the Tower of Babel, the people are building a tower, probably an astronomical tower, to get to the heavens. So that they can fall for the same sin Adam and Eve did, that they will be like God, knowing the difference between good and evil. In fact, in Mass, it says in Genesis 11.4, they said, let us make a name for ourselves. That is exactly the attitude of the Antichrist. He's going to make a name for himself. Well, what's very interesting is, what did Jesus Christ do? Did he make a name just for himself? No, he glorified the Father, didn't he? Remember in the garden he said, not my will, but thine be done. So do you see the distinction? The Antichrist and the false prophet and the harlot, Babylon the Great, are all about making a name for themselves not for God. Notice Daniel 7.25. We know the Antichrist. Oh, I'm sorry. Lonnie. Yeah. Um, have you heard, ever heard that phrase, making a name for yourself? Back in the early 70s, I've heard it like uh, other business people would tell me, like other photographers would tell me, you have to make a name for yourself. That was just common uh, at that time. I don't know if they use that phrase anymore, but I see where it's coming from. Okay. Yeah, I don't know. I'm sorry. I, I'm not aware of that. So um, it looks like Gail, though, had... You were in advertising, Gail? Did you have any insights into the... I have no insights about that. I oh. oh, okay. I'm sorry. Lonnie, um, I'm not sure. Uh, you know, certainly in this day and age, you'll... You'll see a lot of attitudes that line up with this attitude. Um, the one I always think of is the, the guy who dies with the most toys wins. 
uh, well, what do you win with the most? I mean, you know, it's that, make a name for yourself. You're right. It's, it's that kind of attitude. It's, it's inherent within fallen humanity, isn't it? Yeah. If we don't make a name for God, we make one for ourselves. Yes. Can, can you help me out with a question I have? You indicated that the Antichrist is killed in the battle with these three kings. Possibly. I, I can't prove that, yeah. His I'm just, first death or his second? No, because is it the first death then that he is killed and, and comes back to life? Exactly. So in, when you're referring to the second death, you're really referring to the fact that he's going to be one day thrown into the lake of fire forever. So that would be the second one in Revelation 20. So, yeah, this would be the first one. So somewhere at the midpoint... He dies. And who kills him? I don't know. I was just suggesting perhaps it's those three kings because he wages war against them, apparently, according to Daniel. But perhaps that's where he dies. The interesting thing is that when he comes up out of the abyss, he really is indwelt by Satan. And then the last part of the 70th week, the last three and a half years, is the worst time period ever. Persecution against Israel like the world. That's the time of Jacob's great distress, as it says in Jeremiah 30. Yep. So... Thank you. I, I'm sorry. Uh, does that answer the question? Okay. Yep. Now, I just want to point out Daniel 7.25. Think about the Antichrist is depicted as one who wears down the saints. Well, what does Jesus, the true Christ, do? He lays his life down for the saints. He purchases the saints. He sanctifies the saints. He intercedes for the saints. He loves his saints. He protects his saints. He guides his saints. He's coming to save his saints. What a significant contrast. Think about another one. Daniel 7.25, you see it again in 9.27. He will alter the law and stop the sacrifice. That's what Antichrist does. What did Jesus say in Matthew 5.17? He said, I did not come to abolish the law, but what? To fulfill it. He filled the full, the requirement of the law. And all the prophets were about him. Jesus doesn't abolish the law and put an end to it. He fulfills it. And in that sense, he is our righteousness. The Antichrist just gets rid of the law because he's anti-God and anti-law. Daniel 11.37, he will have no regard for the God of his fathers. He'll magnify himself above them all. Did Jesus have regard for his heavenly father? You see him pray to him all the time. I remember in John 17, he says, Lord, glorify, or heavenly father, he says, glorify me with yourself, the glory that we had from the beginning. He is going to be glorified, but he's going to glorify also and magnify the name of his God. That's how Jesus lived. 2 Thessalonians 2.4. Now, this is actually a similarity. Here's where we have a similarity between Jesus and the Antichrist. Notice it says, displays himself as God. Jesus says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. The Antichrist is making the same claim. But one is right and one is wrong. You see, Antichrist and Christ aren't the same, are they? One really is God. One really is the eternal creator. One really is the Savior. One really does have an eternal kingdom. And it's Christ, not Antichrist. The final one that I want to show you on the screen here, 2 Thessalonians 2, 9 through 10, we see that this activity of the beast will be the activity of Satan with all deception. Jesus' activity is the activity of the Father. Remember in John 1, 14, he's full of not deception, but grace and truth. And so do you see the distinctions between Antichrist and Christ? The final one that I want you to see, and we're going to see it on the next slide, is the distinction between the two peoples. Antichrist has a people. The people are lined up with the harlot, Babylon the Great. And remember, Babylon the Great is a city, but it's also a movement of all those who are in spiritual idolatry. And remember, how was Babylon the Great clothed? In scarlet and purple. Well, Jesus, the true Christ has a people. It's called the church. And how are we depicted as being clothed? In scarlet, which is often representing sin? Purple and gaudiness? No, in white linen. Clean. Because we were washed in the blood of the Lamb. And so the question then is, what people will we belong to? Are we going to belong to those who make a name for themselves? Those who seem to have all the power, all the fun here and now? who are dressed in the gaudy things, or are we going to belong to the Lamb by faith? That's the question for the world. And I think that that's a nice contrast to see. Look, there are many things that happen in this world, and there are many wonderful things that we can have. But at the end of the day, it's only what Jesus does for us 
that lasts forever, isn't it? It's only what the King of Kings does for us that ultimately matters. Okay, so let's leave off here on the last slide where we see that the Lamb overcomes the beast kingdom. This is wonderful news. Revelation 17, 13 through 14, talking about the ten kings, it says these have one purpose, and they give their power and authority to the beast. These will wage war against the Lamb, and the Lamb will overcome, overcome them because he is the Lord of lords and the King of kings. And those who are with him are the called and chosen and faithful. Notice, dear ones, here in the purple, there is going to be one unity of purpose finally on the earth in Daniel's day. Isn't it interesting how many times you talk to people and what they want is unity of purpose worldwide. Remember John Lennon's song, Imagine? Imagine, and what, they, what he really wanted is a unity and purpose. Imagine there's no heaven or hell we have to argue about. There's no dogma, no religion. There's nothing to kill each other. We're just going to have one purpose. Well, one day one purpose does come, and the purpose is to give what? Allegiance to the beast. It's pretty dismal, isn't it? When humanity comes together, it's not for the good, is it? It wasn't for the good of the Tower of Babylon. It's not going to be at the rebuilding of Babylon at the end. They're going to have one purpose, and it's to usurp God's power. Now, one idea that I want you to think about, as Bob has mentioned to us as well, this is really talking about a borderless world, isn't it? When they all have the same purpose, borders don't matter. But remember, Bob, I don't know how many months ago it was, he laid out Deuteronomy 32, 8 through 10, that God draws out the boundaries of the nations. God has given boundaries of nations to restrain evil because God knows that if we ever have one purpose together as mankind, it's going to be to usurp him, right? So think about that. One purpose literally leads to the idea of having no borders. Notice also in the underlines here, it says they will wage war against the lamb, but the lamb, he's going to overcome them because he is the Lord of lords and the king of kings. Jesus Christ is the ultimate warrior. Yes, he's a lamb, but he's a lamb who can fight, can he? He's not only the lamb who lays his life down and sheds his own blood to save his people, but he's also the line of Judah. And he's powerful enough to save. Notice in blue at the very end, it says, and those who are with him are called chosen and faithful. That's a reference to believers. Now, the reason that's important is, first of all, notice what we're called. We're called chosen and faithful. There's another reference to the doctrine of election. But the reason that's significant is because those who are with Christ when he returns to set up his kingdom are certainly depicted not just as angels, but also as believers in Jesus Christ. Now, the reason this is important is because when you get to Revelation 19:14, Jesus is returning. Listen to what it says. It says, The armies which are in heaven, that's who Jesus is coming with, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. Some suggest that those clothed in fine linen, white and clean, are only angels. But notice in Revelation 17:14, notice in blue, it says, No, those who are with him, are the called, chosen, and faithful. It's obviously believers. No, I'm not saying that angels don't accompany Jesus at his coming. They certainly do. But Jesus' coming and those who are with him, are all, I should say those who are with Jesus at his coming, aren't exclusively angels. There's going to be believers as well. So that's one of the clues that we have to read in the text when we come to Revelation 19. If we let that go, we get to Revelation 19, we'll be confused. We'll say, well, they're only angels. No, they're believers as well. Yes, Scott? Uh, I was just going to... Uh, connect the erasure of national borders yeah. is is the great apostasy, is it not? I believe that's exactly right. Um, that's a connection. I think you're right. The, the, regarding the restrainer, who is the restrainer? I think the restrainer, a lot is g going for the view that it's the government. Um, one of the reasons why I believe that is if you look at the way Paul writes 2 Thessalonians 2, if the Holy Spirit were the restrainer, and I'm arguing this from silence, but if the Holy Spirit were the restrainer, you'd think he would just come out and say it. There is one reason why I think he's opaque, and that's because talking about the government being gotten rid of would have been very bad press for the early church because of the, Roman, the problems that they had with the Roman government. Okay, So you can see why perhaps Paul would be opaque. And he told him, he says, you know who the restrainer is. Okay, It's such an opaque way of re referring to the Holy Spirit but I find that a difficult view. What's more is we know that throughout history, God has used the government to restrain evil. In Daniel 10, remember, you had this answer to prayer. Daniel was praying. And finally, you have, I think it was Gabriel show up. 
And he says, I would have been here earlier, paraphrasing, but I was restrained by the prince of Persia. Well, the prince of Persia, I believe, is a demonic being, but he obviously has a connection to the nation of Persia. Well, Bob has laid out for us in Deuteronomy 32, remember? God said all the nations were given over to the sons of God, literally the divine council, the angelic realm, the demonic realm. But one nation belonged to him, and that was Israel. Sadly, Israel said, we want to be like the rest of the nations, and they went into idolatry as well. And so they're under the host of heaven. Daniel's 70th week is where God takes Israel back. In fact, not just Israel, but the whole world will no longer be under the demonic realm. So my point in putting it all together is I think there is a relationship between governments restraining evil and the angelic realm. The angelic realm, we have a prince of Persia, right? And certainly there's an angelic being who's connected to the nation of Persia. Paul himself says in Ephesians 6 that our battle is not with flesh and blood, but with principalities and powers. So there is a relationship in the way God restrains evil, both in the angelic realm, angels, and in the earthly sphere with nations. And when mankind gets rid of all the nations and all the borders, then the restraint is gone. And I think that that is the restrainer that's removed out of the way. Just as you're mentioning, the apostasy, the world gives allegiance to one dictator, and that will lead people away. Yep, so well said. I think that that's exactly right. So with that, I know we're out of time. Any more comments and questions before we go? We can certainly talk afterwards. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, that you are the God who's sending the Lamb, the Lion of Judah, to defeat Antichrist and his forces, to set up a glorious kingdom for us. And I do pray, Lord, that perhaps there are any that are listening to this message, that if they're not living for you, that today would be their day that they'd repent and come to faith in Christ for the forgiveness of sins, that they'd be partaker in the kingdom of Christ, not Antichrist. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.